More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, your host, ready to dive in to episode 47 of the podcast. Before we jump into today's topic of conversation, though, I want to say thanks to everybody who interacted on the Church Triggers post in Survivor Sanctuary last week. A couple of weeks ago, actually, we had the episode on church trauma triggers, and so many people were able to relate to that, and I appreciated each and every comment. It's kind of like research for me. I love to see what other survivors of sexual abuse say about how they deal with specific topics related to sexual abuse or how they deal with things like church trauma triggers. Uh, It just gives me a lot of good information, and it also kind of reminds me almost every single time that so many of us struggle with the same sort of issues related to sexual abuse, especially sexual abuse within the church. So I always appreciate it when uh, everybody interacts on those posts in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And make sure that you join us there. Answer the one membership question once you find Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook. Just answer that question. I will add you in and you can be a part of the next discussion on the Facebook group. Always good stuff happening there. Well, our episode this week is kind of piggybacking on the church trauma trigger episode from last week, not necessarily talking about the same thing, uh, things that trigger us in going to a church, but more like the why of why victims of sexual abuse don't feel comfortable in churches, even if you don't necessarily have specific triggers associated with church, which many survivors do. But even if you don't, there are still so many reasons why victims and survivors of sexual abuse find it so difficult to find their place within the church. And One of the reasons this is on my mind is because in this past week, it's just been pretty much magnified with some of the new news that has come out related to a prominent Christian celebrity, we'll call him. I'm just going to talk about who he is because maybe you've seen the articles, maybe you haven't, but Ravi Zacharias, he passed away in May. But before he passed away, there was a pretty big scandal that Ravi was involved with, and I'm not going to get into the details of the scandal. Essentially, though, he groomed and had a sexual relationship with a married woman over the course of many months, and when all of this came out and was accepted exposed, instead of repenting for what he did, he instead blamed it pretty much entirely on the person that he victimized and refused to accept responsibility, essentially made up a story that like she was throwing herself at him and that he didn't do anything wrong. And that was his story. He was sticking to it. His ministry, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, stood behind him, supported him. They ended up settling the case in court. And I'm really just giving you very 
every uh, small pieces of the story here. I will link to some articles from Julie Royce in the show notes. So you can read up on the whole situation and some great investigative stuff that's been done. Well, so many people treated the woman that Ravi Zacharias victimized as a terrible person. When I read some of the comments, even now, and in fact, this past couple of days, uh, Julie Royce has posted some articles about Ravi Zacharias, about the woman that he victimized, and about some new victims of his that have started to come forward. And the comments on these posts have just been heartbreaking is not really the word. Yes, they make me angry, but they also really just disgust me in a sense, because it seems to me that when these big scandals occur, or if a prominent Christian man, whether he's famous or not, I guess you could say it's still the same. If someone is prominent in a church, or lots of people like the guy, it seems that so many Christians will come to the aid of the perpetrator. And sometimes it's publicly in a church, sometimes it's right to a victim's face, or sometimes it's just on an article's comment section where they just decide to basically lecture a journalist for talking about what this man has done, basically saying, well, first of all, he's not alive to defend himself. But even when he was alive to defend himself in this story, Ravi Zacharias refused to accept responsibility for the things that he did that were very, very wrong, that were predatory. And one thing that victims and victim advocates have been saying for a long time is, there's no way this is the only time that something like this has ever happened because somebody just doesn't wake up one day and start being predatory. It's not the way that it typically happens. If someone has that behavior, you can pretty much guarantee that somewhere in the past it's happened as well. And there are probably multiple victims. Well, most people didn't want to hear that. But now, months after his death, people have started to come forward in these spas that were essentially massage parlors that Ravi Zacharias owned. Like, I didn't have any idea that he owned spas. Like, that's a little bit of a departure from his, like, Christian persona. Not that there's anything wrong with spas, but it's just kind of interesting. Like, he's this big apologetics, like, Christian guru guy, and on the side, he owns spas. Okay, nothing wrong with that, except that employees from these spas are starting to come forward and say that he sexually assaulted them, molested them, sexually harassed them. A lot of different stuff is starting to come to light. So when this story is shared on social media and shared out there in the news, what I'm seeing over and over and over again are people who are going into the comment sections and basically berating anybody who wants to talk about it, saying, this man's not alive to defend himself. He was a good person. We don't know. And because he's not here to defend himself, we have no right to say anything about anything. And even when he was alive, these same people came to his defense over and over and over again. Like, we don't believe this woman. We don't care what she says. We don't care that there's email evidence, that there are phone records, that there's all this evidence that points to, yes, he was in this relationship. And because of his position of authority, because of who he was and who she was, he was grooming her and his behavior was predatory. I'm not here 
to tell you what I think about the condition of Ravi Zacharias's heart, whether I think that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, whether I think that his entire ministry was a fraud. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about are the accusations that were made against him with evidence. And when that evidence and those accusations were placed into the public where other evangelical Christians could see them and read about them, the overwhelming response was, we don't believe this woman, or even if it did happen, are we going to let this one little thing tarnish his reputation because he did so much for God's kingdom? He's done so much for God's kingdom that we shouldn't even be talking about this. God has forgiven him, and we should also. I made a deal with myself, and I've broken it so many times, so I need to stop saying that I even made a deal. But I told myself at one point years ago, Kelly, if you want to stay sane in your life, you need to stop reading the comments on any. Facebook post or Twitter post, any post where something is controversial, any article where it's a controversial position, just read the article, decide what you think and move on. But I get caught in like, it's like a death trap, man. It's the spiral down into nothingness where you start reading comments and people on the internet are not only super meat, they're crazy. And I know I can't help myself. I start reading comments. I think that part of me wants to be able to hope that people are good at their core and that people are going to believe the right thing because it's the right thing to believe. And then I get into the comments and listen, I'm not saying that people can't have differing opinions. I'm all for healthy debate and reading other points of view. That's not really what I'm talking about. It's people who will read a story, weigh all the facts, and then decide that none of it matters. And all that matters is that you don't tarnish this wonderful man's reputation, that you don't speak poorly about someone who did so much for God's kingdom, that because he did something wonderful, that we can never talk about this potentially predatory behavior that there's a lot of evidence for, And that points to the type of wickedness that, according to the Bible, we are supposed to expose. We're to have nothing to do with the evil deeds of darkness. We are to expose them like it's in Scripture. And unfortunately, when it comes to Christian leaders, I can't say with certainty the vast majority of Christians defend them, but the vast majority of Christians that I see online are defending predators. And then we want to know why survivors of sexual abuse don't feel comfortable in churches, why they don't feel like there's a place for them to belong in a body of believers. And I really think it's because so much of our theology favors perpetrators. It favors perpetrators over the people that they prey upon to the point that it seems like victims of sexual abuse, victims of sexual assault, victims of inappropriate sexual behavior are viewed as the problem instead of perpetrators. We almost look at them with a kind of contempt. And when I say we, I mean churches in general and believers in general. And I hate to say that because that's not the way that it should be. But the way that we have been taught theology, the way that we have been taught to handle sexual abuse, sexual assault, predatory behavior, the way that we've been taught to deal with it is basically the most predator-friendly theology that exists. Think about it this way. When a scandal comes to light, if it's 
I mean, you could use the Ravi Zacharias uh, scandal, if you want to call it that. You you could use that as an example. And you could also use just a, a person coming forward in a church and saying, hey, this Sunday school teacher, this youth leader, this pastor molested me when I was a child. Um, you can use whatever scenario of victim and predator that you want to use. But when you look at it, what is the job of the victim in this scenario within the church? And what is the job of the perpetrator? And I think that there are literally jobs that are given to the victim and the perpetrator within the church. And when you see how unbalanced this list of jobs is for the two, it's insane. For instance, uh, the perpetrator's job is when they're caught to say, I'm sorry, maybe shed a couple of tears. And that's basically it. But when it comes to the victim within this same church system, the victim's job is first and foremost to forgive the perpetrator. And we start with that so often, like before anything else, like that's the first thing that we want to hammer into people. Well, your job is to forgive the perpetrator. Second, stop talking about your pain because to talk about your pain means that you haven't forgiven the perpetrator. Act like everything's fine because if you act like everything isn't fine, then that means you haven't forgiven the perpetrator. Don't ask anybody for help because if you need help, Obviously, you haven't forgiven the perpetrator because if you forgive the perpetrator, everything's fine, you're fine, we're all fine, and life is going to be great. In some cases, the victim is asked to accept responsibility for their part in the abuse. This literally happens, guys. Like, what was the part that you played? What did you do wrong? I will never forget. Um, as a child, I had no idea that this was going on. Somebody filled the blanks in for me a little bit later in life. But we had um, some family friends, another pastor's family, and their daughter was basically like, as they put it, caught in sin with an 18-year-old guy in her church. She was 12 years old when this happened. She was 12 years old when this 18-year-old started a sexual relationship with her. And when this abuse, because that's what it is when it's an 18-year-old and a 12-year-old, when this abuse came to light, her father, the pastor of the church, required her to stand in front of the church and be church disciplined for the part that she played in what they treated like it was just sexual impurity. 12 years old. And I remember thinking when I was younger, because of the way her family treated her, that this girl was just, you know, she had loose morals and she just had, you know, issues and she just wanted to be this promiscuous girl and, and they couldn't keep her under control. And the reason is because she was sexually abused when she was very young. And rather than getting her help for being sexually abused, her pastor father and the church leaders asked her to accept responsibility for participating in her abuse. So sometimes victims in churches are not only asked to forgive the perpetrator, to be silent about their pain, to act like everything's fine, to move on, to not ask for help. They're actually asked to accept responsibility for part of the abuse. 
And that's happened to a lot of other victims as well. I was listening to uh, Krista Brown's story recently, and she basically had to apologize to the pastor's wife, uh, the man who sexually abused her, who groomed her for a sexual relationship. She had to apologize to his wife for having an affair with her husband. Like she was basically treated like she was this home wrecker and this promiscuous woman who had entrapped this poor, innocent man, basically that even though she was a child when it happened, she had to accept responsibility for her part in the abuse. And that is what the church expected of her. But even if a church doesn't come out and outright ask someone to accept responsibility for their part in the abuse, they do require that you be a model Christian to somehow prove that you aren't harboring unforgiveness. And this forgiveness or unforgiveness is used as a weapon against victims of sexual abuse. It is a heavy, heavy burden that's placed on the shoulders of people who did not ask to be victimized, who did not ask to be sexually abused, who did not ask to be targeted by a predator, groomed by a predator, and then sexually assaulted by a predator. Like none of us asked for that, but it happened. And then this heavy burden of you have to forgive because if you don't forgive this perpetrator, then it's just going to hurt you. And if you talk about your pain, then that means you haven't forgiven. And if you don't act like everything's fine, then we know you haven't forgiven because if you forgive, everything will be fine. And if you don't just move on from this, you haven't forgiven. And if you ask for help for anything, for the trauma that you've dealt with, that means you haven't forgiven. It's just... All of this burden is placed squarely on the shoulders of the victims of sexual abuse. And then the perpetrator's job is what? To accept the forgiveness of everyone? To shed a few tears and be like, oh, God's mercy and grace is so amazing that I have nothing to do but stand here and be forgiven. And not only is the burden on the shoulders of the victim... The perpetrator often doesn't even have to accept responsibility before like an entire congregation. There may be a select few people in leadership that know about what happened, but because most churches refuse to be transparent, because most churches refuse to expose the evil deeds of darkness, because they're unwilling to tell people in the congregation what has happened, they're providing this safety net For perpetrators of sexual abuse, they're providing a safety net for predators. We're going to cushion you against the backlash. We're going to cushion you against people's poor opinion of you. We're going to cushion you against the shame that you should definitely be feeling because you sexually assaulted a child or because you entrapped a vulnerable person into some sexual relationship or, you know, fill in the blank. We're going to protect you from the shame that you should feel by not telling anybody in the church. I will beat this drum forever. It's literally the hill that I will die on. If someone is caught in predatory sexual behavior within the church, every single person in that church needs to know about it. I don't believe in hiding it if it is predatory. And if it is the sexual abuse of a minor, it is always, always, always 100% predatory behavior. And each and every church has a duty to warn any family who has had a child anywhere near that predator for the entirety of the time they have been in that church. That's the hill I will die on because I believe it so strongly. And it's one thing that the vast majority of churches will not do. We've talked about it multiple times here on Survivor Sanctuary. I've had guests that have said the same thing. Churches do not want to alert parents 
and families of children who have been near perpetrators. They don't want to know about any other victims. They don't want the scandal to get bigger. They don't want new victims to come forward. They want to contain the problem and make it as small as possible. And honestly, I believe that is what is at the root of the bad theology that tells victims it's your job to forgive, it's your job to stop talking, it's your job to act like everything's okay, it's your job to not ask for help, and it's your job to move on. That's what's at the root of it. They need everybody to be quiet so that this scandal and this crisis can be contained. You can make it as small as possible, keep it from blowing up, and keep it from getting bigger. The problem is, the issue is as big as it is whether you reveal it to everyone or not. But by not revealing it, by not being open, and by not being transparent, you are harming victims. That is one of the main reasons that survivors cannot heal within the walls of the church or that it's very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. I know that there are some churches who get things right. I know there are people who maybe you weren't abused within a church. Maybe you were abused by a family member or by somebody outside of the church, and you were able to go to church and just be like, this is a place where I can heal and I can just you know, hear scripture and, and sing songs and be around people who are loving and caring, and, and I can heal. I can become whole by being a part of this community. That's a different thing that we're talking about. But when someone is abused within the walls of the church, it becomes a lot harder to be able to heal within those same walls unless the church is doing a lot of things right. And I'm just going to be real. There are very, very, very few churches, probably just a handful, that are doing it right and making church a safe space for survivors. One of the main reasons survivors cannot heal within the walls of the church is that healing requires giving a voice to our suffering, and the church requires silence as proof that we are healing. Those two things just don't mix. When someone begins to heal, or before they begin to heal, the only way that you can heal is to give a voice to your suffering. The only way that you can heal is to admit out loud that something happened. Like you have to walk through that process. You have to deal with your stuff. If you bury it down, if you pretend it's not there, or that you've just forgiven, and if I just say, I forgive you, then I never have to deal with anything related to sexual abuse. Just side note. I said I forgive you my entire life to my perpetrator. I literally prayed for him. I I did not harbor this awful bitterness in my heart. I didn't think anything was there because I literally thought, oh, I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. Poor guy probably feels terrible for what he did. And well, I mean, you, you know, it was just a thing that happened. God forgives everyone. I forgive him. And, you know, I love him in the Lord and I don't hold anything against him. I spent my entire life believing that, like literally believing it in my heart. And I also spent my entire life dealing with the trauma related to having been sexually abused by him. Being silent about your suffering is not what heals you. I've said it before. I will say it again. Being silent about your suffering is not what heals you. Dealing with your suffering, giving a voice to your suffering is what leads you to heal from that suffering. So when healing needs to be done out loud, but this twisted theology in so many of our churches requires us to be silent to prove that we're healing, the two just don't mix. And in so many churches, especially the kind of evangelical churches like independent fundamentalist Baptist and Southern Baptist and the kind of churches that I grew up in and that so many people who listen to this podcast grew up in, our theology favors perpetrators. 
it's just on their side. When the answer to everything is, well, God forgives and so do we, and so we don't need to hold you to task for anything because who are we to not forgive? A sin is a sin. When that is the kind of theology we're throwing at people, the perpetrator is always the winner in that scenario. Because even though he might have to deal with a couple of people finding out about what he did or she, it's it's not always male. I I tend to use the male because there are more male sexual abusers than female, but it, it literally can be anyone. However, in the church, I have definitely found that male sexual abusers, child molesters, pedophiles are definitely the more protected species. I will say that. When you have theology that is set up to defend predators, where does that leave victims of those predators. Where does it leave them? I'll give you a hint. It is not in the pews of that church. I'll give you an example. Um, I used to be terrified as a kid of seeing my abuser. I was so afraid of seeing him. I mean, it lasted for years after the abuse because my family stayed in Indonesia for many years. Uh, We did furlough back to the United States and then we would go back. And any time I was in the city where his family lived, and we lived in in a couple different places, I would feel so sick to my stomach if I ever had to see him. Um, So he abused me when I was six, 10, 11 years old. I was still terrified of seeing him. My family moved to a city that was four hours away, uh, the capital city of Indonesia, Jakarta. And I was so scared when his family was coming to visit us because I, I just felt so sick. Seeing him was the worst thing to me. It made me feel so disgusting, so sick to my stomach. I wanted to throw up. It was triggering to me to even think about having to see him. It was terrifying. So imagine telling a person after they've been abused, and I, I thought I wasn't harboring unforgiveness. Like I, I it wasn't a thing to me. Like I was mad at him. I was so ashamed and I felt so disgusting and so horrible. And I had such awful anxiety over what had happened that my body didn't function right when I was faced with the possibility of having to see him. Like I fell apart emotionally, mentally, physically, like it was not good. I would have to go to bed and be sick for hours and hours and hours because I was so afraid of having to see my perpetrator. Now tell a person who gets triggered when they see the person who sexually abused them, tell them that they need to sit in the same church service with their perpetrator and that if they don't, it's because they're not being forgiving. Like what is a victim supposed to do with that? Um, Okay, well, your perpetrator has every right to be in our church service, we're not going to kick them out because God forgives. And, you know, you said that you forgave your perpetrator. Well, what's a victim supposed to do? Well, yes, I verbally forgave him. And and I really believe in my heart that I did forgive him. Unfortunately, when I see him, I feel like I'm going to die. My amygdala is not as forgiving as I am, apparently, because it goes haywire whenever we're in the same room. And I physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually cannot handle it. There's no support for a victim who feels that way. When they're in a church that is set up with a theological system that favors perpetrators, that hides perpetrators, that comforts perpetrators, and that cushions perpetrators from the consequences of what they've done. I was feeling just all kinds of ways today as I was reading the comments on Julie Royce's article uh, about Ravi Zacharias and the scandals and just reading what people were saying about this woman that he groomed 
and that he preyed on. Um, what people were saying in response to the fact that this evil was being exposed, that Julie, a journalist, is somehow just this gossip monger because she wants to talk about this, and how dare we even talk about this? And I don't recall Jesus ever shying away from talking about things that needed to be talked about. And I do recall Paul telling us in his epistles that we need to expose this kind of evil, that it's the kind of wickedness that even unbelievers don't tolerate. And yet we're tolerating it in our churches. And then we're just telling people, well, you need to forgive and you need to move on. And listen, whatever your feelings on forgiveness, I'm I'm not saying that there's no space for forgiveness in sexual abuse. I'm not saying that. And I know that there are some people who who do believe that, that, that forgiveness doesn't have a place. We don't need to worry about it. And that's not what I'm here to debate at all. What I am saying, though, is that this massive issue of sexual abuse and the trauma of what it does to the mind, body, soul, and spirit of a child cannot be fixed by the simple word forgiveness. It cannot be fixed by the act of forgiving. I love it when everybody acts like, oh, forgiveness will just set you free, man. It'll just set you free. Once you decide to forgive, everything is fine. Well, if you have an anxiety disorder as a result of having been abused, you could forgive all day, every day. You could mean it with all your heart, and it's not going to heal what trauma has done in your body, because that's not how it works. Like our brains don't just heal themselves and our bodies don't just heal themselves from years of trauma-induced suffering because we decide to forgive someone. It's a very oversimplified view of God, view of the Bible, view of even forgiveness itself. When we act like that's the answer for everything. But that kind of theology that requires immediate forgiveness as proof that you're a good Christian damages victims and coddles perpetrators. And I don't think that victims of sexual abuse, survivors of sexual abuse, are ever going to feel safe in churches or are ever going to be able to really find healing within the walls of a church until the theological stuff that we're messing up when it comes to predators is fixed. As long as, oh, a sin is a sin, and everybody sins, and you know, I, I sin, I, I lust sometimes, so why does this guy who molested a child once, like, why does he have to suffer when nobody publicly shames me for my lust? Like, as long as we believe things like that, our churches will coddle predators and alienate victims. A sin is not just a sin. If Joe and Sally in the choir give in to their lustful thoughts and feelings and have a passionate affair as two consenting adults, they're sinning against God and themselves. If an oppressor targets, grooms, and sexually abuses a child, they are sinning against God and that child. They have the potential to destroy the remainder of that child's life to steal things from that child that they're never going to get back. And that child has no ability to consent. When a celebrity Christian grooms someone who is desperate for the love of a father, grooms them and preys on their deepest insecurities in order to satisfy their own lust, that's not an equal playing field and they're sinning against that person. 
I honestly don't know what drives so many Christians to defend perpetrators of sexual abuse. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I've read some articles and some theories about why fundamentalists are more likely to disbelieve victims of sexual abuse or why they're more likely to shun victims of sexual abuse. But honestly, I, I don't understand the why. Like, why does our theology favor perpetrators? Why do we teach these things to people that a sin is a sin, that oh, we just have to forgive and move on, and, and that's what God wants? Like, why do we teach that? Jesus himself didn't teach that. His warning to people who would harm little ones was scary. It wasn't like, oh, if if any one of you causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you if you just asked for forgiveness and a sin is a sin and, and we'll forgive you. That wasn't what Jesus said. His warning was scary. It, it wasn't nice. It was very firm. It was very harsh. And instead of confronting perpetrators with that scripture, we spend all of our time explaining what Jesus might have actually meant instead of what he said. Apparently, so that we can welcome back perpetrators with open arms, forgive them, hug them, and bring them back into the fold so they can keep abusing other people. It's tiresome. It just is. It's it's very tiresome. And I really think that, I mean, honestly, I say it without much hope that that's what's going to happen, but I think that that's the only thing that can happen in order to make victims feel safe within the walls of the church is our crap theology is going to have to be dissected and fixed. Because until it's fixed, it leaves the victim with a heavy weight that there's no way they can carry. It just crushes them to the point where they can't stay there. And for the perpetrator, it's like, oh, here, here's a feather on your shoulder and wear this feather. Know that we love you and we forgive you and you're restored. We've got to stop treating victims like they're the problem. We've got to stop treating victims like the burden of proof is on them, the burden of forgiveness is on them, the burden of pretty much the entire world is on them. Where's the support? Where is it? Do yourselves a favor, don't read the comment section on the articles that I'm going to be linking in the show notes um, to Julie Royce's articles on Ravi Zacharias. If, if you're like me and comments upset you, you might just want to steer clear. Or if you want to know what I'm talking about, go ahead and read them. There were some encouraging comments of people who were, you know, glad the story is being brought to light and, you know, appreciate the work that Julie's doing. And then the comments from people, oh, I want to call them misguided, but sometimes it's just hateful. You know, it's just hateful that despite an ever-growing mountain of evidence, we just refuse to believe what's right in front of our faces because we liked how someone spoke. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. I like how this person spoke. I like the things they said about the Bible. And that means regardless of what they did in their lives or who they hurt or who they prayed on, I choose to turn a blind eye. That's what we're up against, and it's it's not easy sometimes. It's not easy. So I know I need to give myself a little bit of help and just avoid the comment section in the future. I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best. Hey, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'd love to chat some more about this, just your ideas about uh, some of the crazy things that churches believe and the theology that we're teaching that's way off the mark. I'd love to hear about it in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. So join me there to continue the conversation. I'll catch you back here on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.
Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.